prophet isn't allowed to be wrong not once. My name is Matthew Kroll. And the bigger a star, the more violent its demise. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film Oppenheimer. One half of the Barbie Heimer or Barbenheimer uh, complex, as we would like to call it right now. Matt, we are joined by a fantastic guest. We are joined by writer, director, host of uh, host of <laughs> sure. host, host of Happy, Sad, Confused. You might know him as MTV's movie guy, popping up all over the place right now. Uh, but maybe a little bit quieter because since the writers' strike. Um, Josh Horowitz, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? I'm thrilled. Apparently, I passed the test. Uh, <laughs> I'm an official returning guest. Thank you for having me. Thank you for yeah. having me on um, about the the film I'm obsessed with that I take it you guys have something to say about. Um, we're talking about Fast 10 today, right? Well, of course. Exactly. Of course. Exactly. Okay. So do you think that Dominic Toretto's family <laughs> actually went down in that plane? <laughs> you don't have enough tape. How, what are we recording on? <laughs> Josh, you've also been, uh, I mean, prior to the writer's strike and the actor strike that's going on right now, you've obviously been involved in some of the promotion for many of the films that are involved right now. Uh, I think famously, uh, including the Rome premiere of Mission Impossible, which you hosted with one Thomas Cruise. How, like, give us the sort of, you know, I felt like this was the summer of the mo- the, the return of the movies. Uh, how did it feel? You're like welcome, you? Hollywood. I did <laughs> yeah, it. This was you, right? This <laughs> TC all gets all the credit, but it was, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that definitely felt like, um, oh, what the hell did I get myself into on the Spanish steps? world premiere um uh mission impossible dead reckoning part one that's a <laughs> mouthful um yeah it was amazing i mean i well like i you guys know what i do I, I talk to actors and filmmakers but like to be a part of something silly and grandiose like that about a, a legitimately very good movie i i still think it's probably my least favorite of the macquarie's hey. sorry christopher if you're listening yeah. today um, we we just became best friends. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's truly bizarre madness. You can uh, still watch that uh, crazy premiere on on the YouTube's, of course. But yeah, like drones in the air closing down the Spanish Steps. It's like it's nice to be a part of something silly and, and giant like that for an actual good movie. Uh, I've certainly hosted my fair share of red carpets for movies that maybe didn't have that kind of quality. A Baywatch. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that was like that. You, you had that in the bag. You knew yeah. which movie you, you would go ready. to right away. It haunts me it's to funny. this day. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you're you're actually the second person whom we know that was at the Rome premiere. Oh yeah, Patrick uh, Willems was there as well, right? Uh, are you familiar with Patrick? Uh, uh, his work, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so he was there. He did his mission in Patsable, uh, like uh, <laughs> I guess campaign to get invited to the red carpet. If if I had known you were both there, I would have I would have tried to throw you both together. Well, I'll tell I'll tell you what my 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 campaign, which you may have heard at least on one podcast recently. I am so sad about this. I am now directly soliciting every person that knows Tom Cruise to get on his fabled coconut cake Oh, I know about list. the coconut cake. Yes. For those so, that don't know, uh, friends and family in the Cruise universe get on this holiday list. Apparently the most delectable coconut chocolate cake is delivered to your door, signed, I'm sure facsimile style, by Mr. Tom Cruise. And for whatever reason, my combination of love of Tom Cruise and desserts, I just want in on that cake list. And <laughs> recently, I literally solicited Haley Atwell when she was on the podcast. I solicited Emily Blunt, bringing it back to Oppenheimer. Right. Uh, <laughs> Emily was so sweet. She was like, 
just tell him you want to be on the cake list. <laughs> he'll, I, you know, I was not do it. <laughs> I was not aware of the cake list until I saw an interview with Tom Hanks talking about the cake, right. and then the host of Light the Fuse podcast had gotten on they the get list. It. They, they got the it. cake. I know. I know those guys. I hate them. <laughs> I posted the last two Tom Cruise world premieres. Where's my fucking cake? <laughs> Surely we can just get the cake, right? Like, surely think you can. That's not the point. That's I need not it the from point. Tom. <laughs> so, uh, before we move on to the movie of the hour, I'm curious, uh, just just briefly, the the writer strike has gone on. Has, for you, does that mean promotions have stopped? The sort of conversations yeah. are stopping. Uh, what's happening with the podcast in terms of that? Are we just going into the back catalog or a little bit of everything? Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, the, 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 the problem, I mean, look, this is, uh, I can't complain. Obviously I'm not, I'm not a, a writer or an actor. So like I, I, I'm able to do my job to a degree, but mm-hmm. that being said, it's, it's certainly testing, uh, the podcast, my booking abilities. Yeah. I have to be a little bit more nimble. Thankfully mm-hmm. I did book a lot of, uh, and tape a lot of guests prior to, um, the strike, I mean, uh, again, bringing it back to what we're going to talk about today, Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer actually moved up a lot of their press in anticipation right. of the strike, um, like some inside baseball. Like I, I was supposed to interview Christopher Nolan for my podcast, like mm-hmm. a full month after I ended up doing it, I got like basically an email saying like, Hey, can you talk Christopher? Can you see Oppenheimer tomorrow? Which this, right. is, this was like basically the first screening they did like a month yeah. before it came out. And yeah. can you talk to Christopher and Killian in two days? And I was like, what? Of course. But of course you would. <laughs> Absolutely. Christopher Nolan, who's like the most important filmmaker working today to like oh, but cr- cram on an interview um, was not <laughs> ideal, but made it work. Um, but you've interviewed him several times before. And I feel like, uh, again, this is just being a little bit of... Uh, 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 what I love about your show is that uh, you're, it seems like it's, it's always a natural conversation. I feel like all these people love talking to you as we do. And it's, it never feels like, I didn't feel, I don't feel like you would need to do much prep to talk to Christopher Nolan. Oh, that's what you, you, you're smarter than that. You know better than that. No, I, 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 I appreciate that. I certainly, of course, yes, having history and a certain degree of comfort is huge, yeah. but you know, you still want to like just dot all your eyes and cross all your T's or something like that. And and Oppenheimer, honestly, after the first time I saw it, I now I've seen it four times. So four like, times. yeah. Wow. So like, I would watch. I wish I had talked to him after seeing it two or three or four times as opposed right. to one time. Um, but but yeah. Sorry, circling back to your your question. Luckily, we've banked a lot of interviews. Um, I'm not sure when this rolls out, but like I've got some conversations coming up with Emily Blunt for Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. I taped Timothy Oliphant. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, who am I missing? Oh, David Harbour for Gran Turismo and starting to do some filmmakers. Uh, I can still talk to directors. So, nice. which I obviously love to do. Um, so kind of like going back into earlier, um, filmmakers, uh, films this year that I really loved that I didn't get to cover. So I'm going to do Chad Stahelski, uh, coming oh, nice. up soon for John Wick part four. For John Wick um, four, yeah. So, and yes, are reviving stuff from the archives. Like I said, just trying to be a little nimble. Maybe, maybe I'll talk to some DPs. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love, I love that the, the David Harbour interview for Gran Turismo is coming up. I'm looking forward to that one. I, that's a film that I was not, I, I'm a, I'm a, as you can tell by my hat, I like video games. Um, and I've never been a Gran Turismo person, but for whatever reason, I'm fascinated with that specific adaptation of the IP oh, yeah. into this method because it's combining a lot of different sort of things and like based on true events, air quotes or whatever. But like, 
I'm very, very excited to see like if I vibe with that movie. I will say uh, quickly on that one. I, I, yeah, I don't know if the embargo goes up or whatever, but I, I think I can say that like I was actually very pleasantly surprised. It's Neil Blomkamp. It's who, a Neil Blomkamp. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's, right, it's yeah. been it's been a minute since I think Neil Blomkamp has delivered something great, yeah. and I think we all felt after District Nine, his career yeah. was going to go one way, and it hasn't. And yeah. It doesn't say much to say this is his best film district since District Nine, right. but it certainly is, and I and I it definitely it worked on a lot of levels for me, and I uh, I'll be curious to hear what you have to say, being more of a gamer than I am. Um, yeah. You're not works. a chappy fan, I'm gathering. <laughs> <laughs> that man apparently does not have much of a sense of humor about the, the chappy <laughs> memes and gifs. I did not bring, I have not talked to him about it, but I I know him from hearing stories. Uh, well, we uh, we uh, I recall when Neil Blomkamp was hired for the Halo adaptation in New nice. Zealand, uh, and he turned up, and a few friends of mine were working on that as well, and they were all very excited by him, young, energetic talent at that point. Fortunately, it didn't work out. Peter Jackson still, you know, took an interest and and invested some time, and, and the rest is history, so to speak. Uh, right. I'm still curious about his Alien adaptation, which I think I is dead in the water right now. He says mm. it's pretty much. Never yeah. gonna happen. He's yeah, but uh, I'd love to know. I mean, we, we, we he put out like concept art, right? It yeah, looked pretty cool. Yeah. And there's a uh, Al. I forget the director's name. Alvarez. Yes, uh, Fede directed something. He's got a, he's account. got an alien adaptation yep. coming out. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well. Um, well, since it is a little bit quiet right now in terms of what promotion we can do, I thought it would be a great opportunity. And obviously, uh, as, as we mentioned earlier, it's one half of the Barbenheimer ph- phenomenon. Uh, we have discussed Barbie at, at, uh, at length on this podcast. Josh, you have not seen Barbie, which I'm, I'm very surprised by. I'm the last human yeah. being on the planet. Um, I, I have my tickets. I'm going to see it tomorrow night. So, oh. I'm, yeah. Well, I think you will enjoy that uh, yeah. uh, immensely. But I wanted to talk, uh, well, I think we want to talk a little bit about uh, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Matt, could you, for anyone who doesn't know who Robert Oppenheimer is, give us an IMDb synopsis of what Oppenheimer is about? Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if the IMDb synopsis is a good uh, biography for the man. However, it does tell us what the film is about. Okay. And it says, and it quotes, the story of American scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his role in the development of the atomic bomb. Certainly accurate. Accurate. Certainly accurate. Accurate depiction. Are you a fan? I, 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 this is a ridiculous question, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to frame it correctly. Obviously, you're a fan of Christopher Nolan. You, you have to be. You, this is a good cited, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, on this podcast as, as one of the most important filmmakers living today. How are you with biopics? Great question. So this is... I'm not. I'm not. I'm not generally into biopics. Um, mm-hmm. I think I've seen too many. They. They. I, I literally just saw. I just came from a screening for something I can't talk about that was a little biopicy and felt mm-hmm. biopicy. Here's something really interesting. Okay. I, that I, I. I heard an interview with Nolan recently where someone asked him about making biopics and the challenges of it, and mm-hmm. I thought he made a very interesting um, observation. He doesn't think a biopic is a genre of itself. Right. Yeah. He thinks a biopic is basically the catch-all when a film doesn't work as a genre. Like the the, the best um, stories of someone's life actually um, function as a, a genre piece, right? Um, and the bad ones we call biopic, <laughs> we basically. Call biopic. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and I think for the most part, when I was thinking about it, I think I agree with that. When it feels like it's checking off all the boxes, and it feels a little, you know pedestrian um feels like you're walking the walk hard spoof yeah. right um i, I think walk hard kind of set the tone it. for yeah. how do 
how to both criticize and appreciate a biopic uh, in its entirety. And like, for example, Bohemian Rhapsody just uh, a couple of years ago, pretty much beat for beat followed Walkhard and, and was rightly parodied for doing so. And it is, it feels, yeah, it feels it like cosplay Walk- too to me. Like, doesn't, yeah. doesn't it feel like that? I think one of the reasons like Oppenheimer didn't feel like that for me is because I don't know what all these physicists and these people looked like. Um, right. But like when you do know kind of all these famous faces and you see other famous faces playing it, there's certainly, I don't know, there's a degree, it gets too much. It gets a little bit uh, kabuki theater, karaoke. I don't know what the term is. It just <laughs> seems silly. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I've always said this as well, um, or I, I've always certainly thought this, particularly when I saw um, Frost versus Nixon, um, uh, which was that Franklin Langella's performance of Nixon is kind of the right line for this, which is he doesn't sound, look, talk anything like Nixon, but you certainly get an impression of the man that is an interpretation that I think feels correct to what that movie is trying to talk about. And on the on the flip side, you've got, um, for, for as far as biopics go, I think for me, the high watermark, uh, I think this was 94, 95, maybe, maybe earlier than that, um, was uh, Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Um, yes. You know, like as a biopic, that film is riveting. It has something to say. It's got, a, you know, I think maybe to what Nolan's point was, is that the biopic is also an easy marker for an actor trying to get their Oscar. A thousand percent. And, it, right. and, and, and if it's done badly, it feels like that you feel the gears shifting and you're like yeah. going back into your head like you're 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 getting not getting lost in the film instead you're thinking about that actor talking to his agent about how this is going to get them on a podium um yeah and it goes back to like i haven't seen gandhi probably in 35 years but like gandhi ray yeah i wouldn't say any of these are great movies there are great performances within these movies um but it's it's hard for that movie to feel satisfying um it's a real high degree of difficulty i always find uh, like uh, yeah, it's a really interesting. It's a really interesting point to like sort of label them the way that uh, that uh, you mentioned that Christopher Nolan did. Because if it works, you're just like, oh, that's a great film. If not, then it's a biopic. There's a sort of caveat about that. And and actually, was it this year or was it last year? Time has no meaning. But weird, the Al Yankovic story, <laughs> which yeah. technically, technically is a biopic, but it's it knows it is it like it's like the real world Dewey Co- like walk hard in yeah. in a way oh yeah definitely and and like whenever there's something extra like that it's almost like the opposite end of the spectrum where it's like yes it is a biopic it it kind of it's being called that because of a certain ilk that it's doing but when that ilk is the point uh, I I always kind of dig when they can pull that off. Yeah, I, I would want to go back. I haven't seen Malcolm X in far too long. I would want to mm. go back to that because that's a great example. I feel like even Spike Lee has talked about. I asked, didn't didn't he call it like a almost like a crime drama in yeah, a way, or I, someone did yeah. recently? Well, yeah. Well, I think that the other familiar. thing that happened was that JFK and Malcolm X came out at the same time, and while JFK, you know, sort of summarizes the man in some way, it's also a crime procedural about his death. Yeah, it's and, a conspiracy the- uh, like uh, yeah, film. conspiracy yeah. theater. Yeah. Um, so I think those two movies kind of got lumped together in that same conversation as well. Right. Um, well, with that, you know, you sort of maybe medium feelings about biopic. What about the th- what about the conceit that Christopher Nolan would be doing <laughs> biopic? Because this is, if I'm not mistaken, his first true life adaptation, and right. certainly one of the only few adaptations he's done. I'm thinking of The Prestige is probably another one. 
Uh, I can't. I mean, are you talking about real life events? Because and Dunkirk, you could argue. Dunkirk. And Dunkirk, of course. And Dark yeah. Dunkirk rises. isn't got a single. And the Dark Knight Rises, man. I remember when <laughs> Bane took over Wall Street. We don't talk about it, but I was there. It happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, were you to the. This is maybe another thing in the in the Barbenheimer period that people may have forgotten about the sort of bidding war that happened with oh, yeah. Oppenheimer, yeah. Mm. and it it to me it was a testament to Christopher Nolan's position in the film industry, which I would surmise is kind of like Kubrick in the seventies, which is that Warner Brothers, you know, and I, I'm thinking of course of when Kubrick decided to pull a Clockwork Orange from London or from UK distributors because he felt it would it might be harmful in that country. And Warner Brothers agreed, which was astounding that they would actually do that. And and I think, I, I feel like Nolan is possibly the, the only person who's come close to that level of prestige or position within the industry where his voice commands a lot. And what I meant by that, um, the sort of the bidding war that happened is uh, this was his first movie away from Warner Brothers, uh, which he bid on to a number of theater uh, to a number of different distributors which was sort of he'd made his name and it was Warner Brothers but I, as I recall it was kind of like the heads of every studio were invited to read the script come to his um, facility and there was like a bidding war yeah. and it was one of the most hotly contested bidding wars ever well, and they weren't, as I recall, I'm going to remember the broad strokes, not specifics. It, it wasn't so much even just like, are you interested at a certain price? There were a certain, there was a very particular list yeah. of demands about you could not release another film from your studio within six weeks. It needed to be exclusively theatrical. It needed to have IMAX. It needed to have a certain marketing budget. It was it was the whole shebang. Yeah. And you're right. I, I mean, the closest I can think of is every time Tarantino right. has a film now, he kind of does the same thing. Like the script kind of goes out around town and they all kind of throw their bids in. Now the Weinstein Company obviously is defunct. Um, but this is a whole nother level too because like Dunkirk proved... Um, you know, Tenet is its own thing. That was obviously a, a COVID thing. And the movie yeah. is probably my least favorite of his also. Yeah. Um, but like he is truly his name can open a movie beyond. I mean, back to like Spielberg and his heights like this. Is, yeah. This is the level he's at. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's fascinating to see that Warner Brothers. I mean, look, Warner Brothers is not crying because they have a billion dollar plus movie in Barbie. Yeah. yeah. But um, it's interesting that the, the, the yeah. that the. It's interesting that the, competi- the the sort of virtual head-to-head that kind of came about was really about Nolan and his previous studio versus his newest studio as well, um, which I think is is a fascinating way to look at the Barbieheimer kind of um, uh, event. So I mean, I, th- I think it's fascinating because at least because it was truly sort of a a, a fan crafted narrative of Barbenheimer. How like it's and especially for something that is blatantly like from the internet to have it be for the most part, so positive, <laughs> like, is unheard of on the internet. Now, granted, I do want to bring up, I, 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 I didn't hear about this in time when we did our Barbie episode, but there has been um, a minor and, I, I think, appropriate backlash to the Barbenheimer thing from many people in Japan. Right. Because when right. you're talking about it and you're putting these things together and you're mashing it up and, like, there's uh-huh, a... I'll get an atom bomb explosion. Like, yeah. in pink <laughs> and, like, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Like, yeah. then I, there was a couple memes coming back to try to... And I was actually... I was... It's weird to say I was happy to see what I'm about to describe, but, like, it, I think it got the point across. They started putting, uh, basically, Barbie with 9-11. Right. 
in memes and things. And like, I think that got a lot of people like sort of like on the same page with it fairly easy. And again, like, don't get me wrong. I do overall appreciate what Barbenheimer's trying to like what what it sort of did and how it invigorated both of these films I think when it gets to more of like the graphic designy memes with the nuclear bomb and like all that stuff that's when it gets uh dicey so but regardless so overall a positive reception to just two very different it wasn't like which movie are you gonna see <laughs> it was which movie are you going to see first Right. in the day you're going to see them both the same day right like and that was such a cool thing to see and experience to have everyone kind of be happy for these disparate films well and also i think i think that this is a perfect storm of events in in that at the end of the day and i haven't seen barbie but i i i would put money on me appreciating it based on everything i've read and greta's track record they're both great movies. Yeah, right. like this yeah. doesn't this this happens to a degree if they're not great movies, but they're yeah. two fantastic movies seemingly by all accounts. And that how often does that happen? How many great summer blockbuster four quadrant movies do you get? And you couldn't have predicted that something like Oppenheimer. Sure, we all I think thought it would do fine because of Nolan and the cast, etc. Right. But like the box office story of Oppenheimer is in its own way as shocking as the billion dollar plus um, returns of Barbie. Yeah. And given what the, there's a moment I'm going to talk about. I think we should, we should, we should give our overall impressions, but this, we should get into spoilers fairly quickly for this film. Uh, this this episode's coming out next week. So it's been, the movie's been out for a couple of weeks uh, at this point as well. So hopefully everyone's seen it. You've seen it four times. I managed to get to see it twice. Uh, plus I watched a couple of things around it. Uh, I think Josh, you pointed out the day after Trinity, uh, which is available on the Criterion channel, which I watched as well, as well as Fat Man and Little Boy um, as a good companion piece to this as well. Um, over Overall impressions now. Now having seen it four times, what was the four times because of work, or were you intrigued? Uh, no, not 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 for work at all. Um, I I've seen it three times in seventy millimeter IMAX, one wow. one digital. Um, Oh, that's well. where all the tickets went. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm that asshole. Sorry, guys. Um, it's uh, I look. I think it gets better with each viewing. Truly, the first the first viewing for me, um, like many of no one's films, but this one more so than any, maybe save Inception, is an overwhelming kind of sensory experience. Mm. Um, the you know the time jumping, the different film stock, the the many characters, the dense. The dense, talky plot. Um, I do not have a degree in quantum physics. Um, it's oh wait, uh, hang on, what? I know, I'm sorry. You can boot <laughs> how me. Did you get on the how did you get on the show? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the classes gonna give it away. You're yeah. renowned physicist Josh Arnold, right? <laughs> oh, we booked this wrong. <laughs> um, but truly, um, it 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 becomes more uh, of a satisfying watch for me with each uh, viewing. Um, it's it's very intricately plotted and and like all of, no one is so great at um the symmetry of his scripts he he loves um beginnings and endings and 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 finding ways to link them together and um and no one is better at cross-cutting and building to um uh dramatic uh using that that, that cross-cutting to dramatic effect um and then just the big swing of it all being done in a three-hour film that somehow doesn't look it's a three-hour film it's not like it doesn't feel like it's a three-hour film but it it it, 
it really did and has held my attention for, I guess, 12 hours um, mm. of viewing for me. And I find new things to, to investigate with each viewing, new performances to enjoy. I can, you know, just like absorb the Ludwig score on one viewing. I can absorb the cinematography on another. I can focus on an actor that I didn't the first two times. Um, it's, uh, I, I, yeah, I, it, I think it's a masterpiece. I think it may be his, his, uh, his greatest work. Wow. Matt, Cheer, how about what, you? Oh, sorry. What, oh, well, wow. I <laughs> wow. mean, I'll go. I have a, I have a confession. Okay. Uh, so I saw this movie at 9 a.m. not on IMAX or 70 millimeter because they're all sold out everywhere. <laughs> <Josh>. And I, I <laughs> thank, thanks. Um, but uh, the subways were running pretty bad. Oh, and I no. think I missed the first like three or four minutes of the film. Okay. And so when I walked in, they were already like in the middle of the beginning hearing scene. Oh, okay. okay. That okay. is, so, that so, is so, quite junk. So, yeah. so an interesting. First of all, I loved the film. No yeah. question. We'll get into why later. But I, this is something I kind of want to ask both of you about because okay. I, d you know, as you notice, whenever that sort of happens with a movie, like you go in a little bit on the back foot, mm. and throughout my entire um, the the time I was there, I didn't understand initially the importance of of Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, Louis Strauss. Right. Like, it had been a while since I'd read about the story, like the actual historical event. So, like, I... It was it was an interesting sort of thing moving forward through the narrative of the script to have it end up where it does, or the film, because I think... Correct me if I'm wrong. It's a lot of, like, build-up with him in the beginning. Is that correct? Like, he's walking to the hearing, or there's something? Or am I... What, what was a, the first couple a, minutes? I think one of the things that... Um, would be, I, I don't know if helpful, but it kind of sits up the structure right away, which is that there is a black and white, it, it is very similar to Memento, by the way, Yeah. which is that there is a black and white portion of the movie which is labeled Fusion, which is about Louis Strauss's uh, hearing to become the Secretary of Commerce, uh, playing alongside a color version of the film or color version of events that is called Fission, that is playing Oppenheimer's story as he comes up. And I, I Josh, I don't know about you, on first viewing, I will admit, I I actually thought the Strauss, the conceit of tying Strauss to Oppenheimer in this way felt like a little bit of a reach um, on first viewing. I think it is a reach, to be honest. I think it, like, if you get, if, like, he is basically, and this becomes more and more apparent the more you kind of delve into it, it is, he is setting up these mirror stories, right? These yeah. are two men that are facing um that that are that are being grilled in different hearings and they both kind of basically spoiler alert kind of face very similar ends in a, in a weird yeah. way um and by all accounts strauss strauss as he says like denying his jewish heritage very yeah. cu curiously <laughs> um is um is not the the uh, figure of historical import nearly that Oppenheimer is. And in fact, as I, as I understand it, the book that this is all based on, American Prometheus, the Strauss, the Strauss hearing is, I think, a very small, if at all, part of that book. So he this is not a construction, but an inflation uh, for dramatic yeah. effect. And I think it works. For me, it works. And but I, I do but I do hear you that it is a reach. It is. Yeah. It's a dramatic reach for for dramatic effect. It, it's a very it's a very um, it's very much a construction. Like you can see it. There's no natural tie between these two people. There is a tenuous 
sort of suggestion that one man's downfall is directly related to the other man's downfall in some way. Uh, and, and certainly history does bear that out. However, I can imagine, Matt, if when you walked in trying to figure out why is this guy like it, it's actually even hard to decipher what Strauss is uh, being um, uh, cross-examined for. Is the, is it is it this is a dumb and I feel so bad that I don't know this. Is it actually labeled in the film as fusion and fission? It is. It is. So the there's like text. Yep. There's text on screen. But oh, it's never re- referenced later though. It's like you could but very easy to forget. Like yeah. It's so funny because then I you know as you notice it going back between black and white and color, mm. uh, I realized there was a separation and what the separation was, but I didn't know that it was so blatantly labeled in the beginning. And and then there's some interesting things which is there's a scene in the middle where um Strauss is brought to a meeting in New York, I believe where uh, it is, it is, and, 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 you know, again, with most Nolan films, it's actually difficult to decipher where in time you are. But it's, uh, the having watched it twice, what we understand is that the Russians have launched uh, or have tested what we believe to be uh, something akin to the hydrogen bomb or something mm, they're right. testing in the hydrogen bomb's uh, um, sphere, which Teller, played by uh, Benny Safdie, uh, wanted, to, wanted to explore in this film. And um, we get that scene both in black and white and in color in the film, we get scenes replayed from those because we are intended to understand that in one perspective. And and unfortunately, I think the, the, the part of it that's a reach is that the scenes don't play out very differently between color and black and white in those sequences. We, we sort of get a little bit more information in one than the other, but it's not like we see the scene and then suddenly it's not a Rashomon type situation where we suddenly reinterpret what's happened. There are there, there there are a couple of moments like that. That's definitely one, and the other, which again, upon repeated viewings, I don't know if like I was just like not as observant, but like by the third or fourth viewing, I'm like, oh, he's hitting the the nail on the head so hard on this. But yeah. like the whole like radioactive isotope, yeah, the isotope exploration, yeah, which 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 I have a feeling is a pretty minor footnote in history that again. No one has inflated to such a degree where, again, you see it from these different perspectives. And when you see it from Strauss's perspective, you feel him like, oh, he was cut down. He had this like he like you feel him like just like cut to the core. And that's why he has this vendetta against Oppenheimer. And again, dramatic construction. But here's something that that reminds me, like when you were just talking about, he's mentioned this in at least one interview. And it it rings true to me. you know, he cites Amadeus as an, right. as an influence yeah. Yeah. on yeah. this film. And I think there, there's definitely, if you look at it through that lens, the Strauss-Oppenheimer yeah. relationship, you could frankly also apply it to the Oppenheimer, um, the, the character played by uh, uh, Benny Safdie. Um, Teller. Teller, of course. Edward yeah. Teller uh, also has uh, some would, elements of well, that yeah, as well. Teller. Yeah, I, I also uh, read this this week, by the way. Te- uh, Teller, um, along with somebody else, may have been the inspiration for Dr. Strangelove. Doctor Strange loves look. That would check. So, That's so amazing. the the, the sequence when Teller is applying <laughs> this uh, sunscreen to his face and and sort of goes whoa, that is uh, maybe a direct reference to Doctor Strange Love, which I was not aware of, but it's such oh, a startling I image. Need to talk to Nolan again, if we know he's a Kubrick lover, that would not surprise <laughs> of me. Of course, yeah. and that is Kubrick's greatest movie. So, um, I, so real yeah. quick, I, I'm just to ta- to put a cap on it. I wonder if you both saying the 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 tie between the two characters of Oppenheimer and Strauss felt a little bit. Uh, tenuous, you know, at least upon first viewing or whatever. I never felt that way at all. Okay. And I'm wondering if that's just a personal note or did the fact that I missed the first few minutes <laughs> and that setup affect my, like, perception 
of that being t- like a little bit forced or not, which is possible. Like I don't, I don't know. I'm gonna have to. I'll, I'll have to watch it again as soon as Josh is done buying all the IMAX tickets. <laughs> well, it's but you're not alone in that. Like also, I feel like if there is a constant. Uh, refrain, like uh, if there's a criticism of the film that I've seen prop up a lot, it's about that final act, which mm. delves more and more into the Strauss hearing and the uh, and the Oppenheimer um, uh, hearing, whatever. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the, the banana court, the banana court, the kangaroo court, kangaroo court, banana court, banana court, the banana court. That's what I get out of my banana court. But I, I find that I don't know. I think it's also partially Downey's performance. I'm obsessed with. He's just he's just a a movie star who is just delicious to watch. Like his mannerisms, his I love mm. the sound cue, the 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 Woodwig's kind of like Strauss like frenetic theme that he uses yeah. a couple times. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I I hope and think he will definitely be in an awards hunt. And I think it's it's just a, a reminder that we didn't need that he's just one of the most charismatic performers on the planet. It, in fact, in many of the interviews, it's it's amazing to see, you know, because with, with him and Favreau, for example, I think there's a, like a real sort of e- equality of appreciation with each other. But listening to Downey in interviews with Nol- with Nolan sitting next to him, you can hear how much reverence he has for the man. You know, like it is, it's, he, th- there's, I think Downey commands every room he's in, but for some reason... With Nolan, I mean, probably rightly so, he feels like he's just got a real reverence for him and will follow him wherever he goes kind of thing and was and was itching to do a movie like this. I think he needed that. That's what yeah. you need, like someone like that. You need to, like, give yourself over to, like, a, a master filmmaker because he's the most powerful guy on the set of Doolittle, I'm afraid. And so <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stephen Gagan cannot tell him yeah. what to do. He's doing his own thing, and that's, oh, you know. Oh, Gagan, how far have we fallen since uh, Syriana? <laughs> I was um, going to say, I, I watched an interview with um, Nolan and uh, Downey. Um, I'm trying to remember which junket. It's the one where they, like, have, like, the Google searches and they rip the things off the stuff. Uh, and the energy that I saw even Downey bring out of Nolan. I know. Yeah. No one has smiled no more on this very... press tour than I've ever seen him. He's like, yeah, and I and think so a lot you, of it's Downey. Yeah, yeah. It's just I think it was it was so interesting to watch because I was like, ooh, ooh, this is oh wow, okay. <laughs> like, there's just a I don't know. There was a like a like three percent of playfulness. <laughs> and I was like, okay, all right. So uh, yeah, I uh, the I think the thing is for me is that JFK and Malcolm X were such formative films for me that um, they entered into a pantheon of movies that have immense repeat watchability for me like movies i think guillermo del toro talked about these as one sock movies where you're (laughs) if you're getting ready to go out and you put on one sock and that movie happens to be playing what's going to happen is you're going to spend the whole night in and just have one sock on the whole time (laughs) because these movies are so watchable um and i i i was sort of staggered by the fact that nolan I think has delivered for me his first one sock movie, um, which is that it is, as you say, immense in scope. I love the chutzpah of this guy to make an IMAX movie that takes place mostly in a shabby little room. Uh, I just, I think that's incredible. Yeah, <laughs> like a closet just, just they've the... turned into an interrogation room, basically. Yeah, and yeah. and it and it is a shitty looking interrogation room. <laughs> it is not like we, we, there's no uh, embellishment whatsoever of the of the space what's uh, at all. Um, but like you, I think the the first time is especially in seventy millimeter uh, IMAX. It was overwhelming. It was kind of like 
and, and, you know, there is this problem that I have with Nolan's approach to IMAX, which is that uh, it, it's sort of a, a byproduct of the, 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 the screening system. But, you know, so, for example, in the Strauss hearing, there'll be a wide shot in IMAX and then a close up in 35 mil or vice versa. And you don't cutting back and forth, basically. Yeah. And when you're cutting in, uh, when you're watching an IMAX, it actually gets, I think, a little bit, uh, it, it feels for some, for, I find the second time I watched it where I watched it in a normal RPX screening where there wasn't that sort of delineation between shots, it was a much cleaner experience. And, and the movie's overall visual design became much more apparent to me, whereas in those sequences I kind of felt you know like I was sort of being bumped around by the format changes, which, which don't have the sort of like elegant design that, for example, um, Damien Chazelle's First Man does, where, you know, it's 35 mil and then IMAX or, or Wizard of Oz or something like that. But um, uh, I, I think what's amazing about this is that in every time that I've talked about Nolan, we've talked about him on the podcast a lot, I, I remember the first frame of Memento and where I was when I saw the first frame of Memento. And it was that, is that Polaroid that develops backwards. And I, I remember going, Oh my God. Like, like this is, I, 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 I distinctly remember going, I wish I was smart enough to have thought of that. Um, you know, because then the scene plays backwards and it was incredible. So I, but I've always kind of felt that his greatest work was Memento and, and, you know, everything else has been playing around the edges and, and he certainly, um, as as we've discussed, become one of the most powerful filmmakers on the planet. But I've never felt that any of the films have lived up to the promise of Memento, despite becoming bigger and more extravagant and 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 incredible in many ways. Um, but I was surprised at how much Oppenheimer both felt like a pivot for him, as well as funneling in everything that he has been interested in his entire career including his flaws there there are issues with the film that i have in terms of uh, you know whether its structural approach works in some way sometimes i feel it's beautifully elegant other times i feel like it gets in the way of itself um i think his <laughs> you know for 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 lack of a, uh, a more elegant phrase here his use of the dead wife uh, approach sure. which is a true story in this case it's it's, it's mentioned in fat man and little uh, and little boy as well but it it uh, having seen how many, how often Nolan uses this as a trope to motivate his central character, it does feel uh, a, a little bit uh, tropish at this point. But on the whole, what I love about this movie is the density of it, and and the sense that um, Nolan is reached a point here where it's you know I think like like they mentioned in Oppenheimer uh, when Oppenheimer is talking about quantum physics and Albert Einstein says you've brought quantum mechanics to the world and we're just living in it now. I think this is Nolan's world and we're just living in it. And and the beauty of a Nolan film at this point is we've just got to keep up. And it's firing on all cylinders. There's never a moment that this is not um, moving rapidly in every direction and daring you to keep up with it. And and I think it's it's astonishing for that fact because because it was also the first movie in a while of particularly because in Tenant I was not I remember when we did Tenant Tenant was a movie where I was like I don't want to watch that again for a long time and you know the thought of watching it just kind of makes me go ugh but this was one where I walked out of it and said I'm ready to go see that again tomorrow or you know like in the next hour if I can and and would I've seen it twice now I would be happy to see it for a third time like immediately. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of astonished by that. I think there are lots of problems with it that I want to get into or, or, or lots of, um, lots to discuss because it is about a complicated man 
made by a complicated filmmaker. And, and I think it, uh, I wanted to bring up this, this review one of our listeners wrote for Letterboxd, which I, I absolutely loved, and it, it is a little crude, so apologies in advance. But Jonathan Blade wrote on Letterboxd, uh, and I, I reached out to him and said, I've got I've to read this out. He said, after the buildup to fucking the sky with his nuclear penis, the film's post-nut clarity manifests itself as disgust with itself. Oppenheimer is a thesis on masculine greatness, and in the face of, this, uh, of the side-by-side release with Barbie, how organically toxic it can and probably will be. I thought... Um, I, first off, I think Jonathan Blade, uh, one of our listeners, wrote that is, is just a wonderful writer. But... I, I think there's so much to get into here. Not all of it's positive, but that's what makes it exciting to talk about um, for me. Well, one thing I would say that is well-written. I wish I could be as profanely, beautifully <laughs> profane as that. Um, but uh, the, the character and the man of Oppenheimer, I think the difference is that there, there, is, there is shame and angst all the way up to the event. Yeah. It's not yeah. like he is has hubris and is excited <laughs> to unleash this he is he's not wrecked. gi joe he's well, he's he's got layers <laughs> but i think it's interesting for example um uh, and w- again uh Prome- american prometheus is a is a heavy tome from what i understand and the film doesn't mince like going into a lot of detail here but uh, there was a moment for me that was startling which is when oppenheimer kind of becomes interested in leftist politics, becomes, uh, you know, he, he sort of says he's intellectually uh, interested in leftist politics, but maybe not on a fundamental level. But as soon as the opportunity to work on nuclear fission and the bomb comes about, he's willing to abandon that very, very quickly. And I think that's a testament to, like, how interesting and fascinating a guy this was. Um, and and it the, it's weird because... Uh, well, it's interesting because this plagues him for the rest of his life. His his sort of dabble in leftist politics becomes part of the Mar- McCarthy era witch hunts and becomes part of Strauss's sort of knife in the back for him. Um, and and I like that the movie, like, I, I think a more streamlined film might have just ignored that altogether. Uh, but it really, you know, like sets that up, abandons it, brings it back a little bit later and doesn't explain a lot about Oppenheimer's sort of sense of, I guess, his, his sort of body politic in, in many ways. And it's not afraid to look. The man, they depict the man almost murdering his own teacher. Um, yep. <laughs> uh, uh, the man is a serial womanizer and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. by all counts, not a great father or husband. Um, you know, of course it lionizes him to a degree as this kind of like noble man who... Um, kind of suffered, like, and Kitty kind of calls him out for it, being this, like, you know, silent martyr. Mm. Um, but I, I think it's a pretty, I don't know, it's, it, it seems like a pretty nuanced, complex, flawed portrait um, of a man who was not, you know, black or white, was like all of us, <laughs> like, shades of gray, and had to wrestle with, like, the biggest moral conundrum possible. Yeah, I I think, and again, from what I've read about the actual man, like, yeah, is there are there things that are left out or embellished or 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 uh, paved over a little bit? Sure, but I think the gist of making sure that the Oppenheimer that we saw in Nolan's movie is a depiction of an actual human being and not someone who is just full of hubris or who is just a womanizer or who is just a, someone who gets steamrolled. Like, I, I felt like I watched an actual person, however accurate or inaccurate it was to the historical man, 
going through, as Josh, as you said, one of the most, if not the most difficult, like, moral quandary of what to do in this situation using gifts that he was given uh, to be able to help figure things out and then manage other geniuses doing the same. Like, I never felt that um, this film, it's weird. I, I never felt that this film, like, glorified or lionized the bomb any more than it also tore the idea of it to shit like it, it it really did kind of have a nuanced balance of like here's here's some good things it did let's even say it like this here's some good things it did for america and some bad things it did for america like and, and it kind of the, the vibe of that i feel like was a real knife's edge to ride and i felt like it actually did and partially because um Lately, just backing this up for a second, I have not been a real big fan of Nolan's last three, two and a half ish works. Uh, not counting Quay, but like Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Tenant, I they, they just didn't really vibe with me. And a lot of it is due to some of the the timey wimeyness <laughs> of of his storytelling. Here, I feel like like. Whatever ingredients he has in his culinary like uh, pot uh, to make his his cinematic stew, as it were, uh, I feel like everything was super balanced. Like the timey wimeyness jumping between the storylines and everything felt so like clean and narratively healthy to me that I think that overall helped the balance of a lot of those moral quandaries for the actual character of Oppenheimer for me. Like, I just felt like everything was in a real good alignment. I, I think the the other thing that, that, you know, circling back to, we were talking a little bit about the broader cast, and you cited JFK earlier. I keep coming back to JFK. And, I, yeah, and, I, I, and JFK is, is probably the movie almost more than any that blew my mind as a young yeah. man that really changed how I looked at cinema. And holds up to this day. You can obviously pick it apart from what was actually accurate. I, I always think of just J JFK as just like a fictional great thriller. Like, right. don't yeah. try to assign any actual reality to it. It's just an amazingly dense, uh, yeah. satisfying thriller. But like JFK, there are many similarities. Um, the extraordinary cast, the extraordinary um, performances, the sense that 40 different characters within the narrative are all somehow fully realized and feel mm. really authentic and you can like I, you know jfk i want to like follow john candy and michael rooker and these feel yeah. like sweaty real humans with backstories and very and similarly in this like there are a dozen like <laughs> physicists in that room and like they all actually feel like they're not just like cardboard cutouts yeah. And and maybe aside from like and I will, I I really like Alden Ehrenreich and I'm rooting for him. He's probably the yeah. closest to kind he of like is, a, he's, he's a his bit character. of a cipher. He's just yeah. pretty pretty basic what he's doing. Yeah, it's a he, he's certainly character. an audience yeah. member at that point. Yeah, yeah, but he does yeah. it well and it works. Yeah. But like everyone else, Hartnett. I mean, uh, you know, down to yeah. the smallest characters. I I. I I just was endlessly fascinated and wanted to like Google each person and kind of discover their own story. So there is one thing, in fact, JFK is a really important touch point for what I want to talk about next, which was that in my first viewing, there was this sense that I, I think the movie, again, is brilliant in terms of setting up the structure of the ascension of Oppenheimer, his, his foray into politics, his entry into the government, uh, into getting security cleared and working on the Manhattan Project to eventually igniting, um, you know, at the Trinity, uh, the Trinity test, and then, and then his kind of slow downfall. You know, um, I think that all works 
marvelously. But there was something about the point at which the bombs are sent away to Japan and we hear only on the radio that they have been affected. And the movie kind of switches gears into becoming somewhat of a horror movie for, for at least a couple of scenes where Oppenheimer is delivering a speech um, uh, celebrating the victory of the, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we, you know, like uh, this is Nolan kind of employing the full sort of both cinematic and auditory soundscape to give us the terror and the contradiction of the celebration that's going on, which is that on the one hand, it is, um, you know, profoundly amazing that they, that they, they've created something that they feel may have ended the war. On the other hand, they have caused so much destruction. And I think for Oppenheimer, someone as well read as him, uh, I mentioned earlier that I read the Bhagavad Gita just, just to kind of give myself some context. Um, it, Reading that actually gave me a sense of of his understanding that what they were doing was playing with the elements of nature and in a way playing God and and using the elements of nature in the most destructive way possible and and I don't think that was lost on him. But there's a thing about JFK that I always come back to and think about, which is the Zapruder film and the way in which JFK weaponizes the Zapruder film to both make his argument that there was a conspiracy involved in the assassination of JFK, but also to inject uh, real-life evidence for that in the film. And I was very curious by the, the decision in one particular moment when Oppenheimer is being told what the fallout of the war, uh, of the bomb was in Japan, but the film doesn't show it. And I thought, and there was just an interesting moment to think about, which is that a film that is so devoted to visual veracity you know like we 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 exploded an actual bomb in the trinity test here is the power of this of this weapon here is the visualizations of it i was very i i can sort of understand why they chose not to do it for the very reason matt you kind of suggested like playing this film internationally but i also wondered about how powerful it would have been for the film to really go there with that moment in the sort of the way that there's a in the way that Stone uses the Zapruder film. I, I, I know it's a tricky situation to like inject real trauma, but that's what this film is talking about. The, the problem, I, I get it, and it may have worked. It may yeah. have worked precisely because of this. Like he, when I think of Nolan, I think of such a, um, he is militant about his methodology. Yeah. And he is like all about, this is a subjective movie. This is about Oppenheimer yeah. And Strauss, and you are not going to see a damn thing that yeah. they did not see. And but there's a scene where he sees he's in the room sitting watching a slide projector of what happened. They in fact describe it, but the film chooses not to show it. Right. I, I see and, what you're saying. So you could see what he is actually seeing. That, that, that's and I a, think that is a good point. That is a good point. And I think, yeah. and I think for me, I, like that was just the sense I had at the very beginning of the, uh, on my first watch. It kind of evened out by the second time because I knew what the film was trying to do. But I wondered about really giving the audience, again, in the same way that the Zapruder film does in JFK, really giving the audience the weight of what happened. Now, I know I, 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 I very firmly understand that this is a very delicate choice. And, you know, either choice is not made lightly. You know, to, it's to show it or to not show it is not made lightly. But I, I wondered a lot about the weight of what this film is trying to get at in terms of Oppenheimer's um, guilt or the bearing of what he believes he has, be, he has contributed to. And to, whether we as an audience should have seen it. 
to Josh's point about like you know a Nolan film is like you see what the characters he wants you to sort of follow around sort of see uh even to that point of like seeing the slides etc mm -hmm. I don't think it's remotely and I, I, I again I'm guessing but I imagine the choice to not do that is because it's not remotely needed uh I think this movie does enough to show the intense uh guilt and shame and 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 conflict of the characters involved without it and to show it i think would one take um attention directly away from those characters i would i don't think we the because this is a master cra like uh craftsman of film i feel like we get he managed to get the feel without going to this like and I, and I don't think even if he used them he would use them this way but I'll just use the word without using the salaciousness of like but look at this and and that has places in movies no question but at the same time um I do not I I weirdly think obviously there's a a, a shit ton of trauma tied with it so there's that angle of it but I also think it would have detracted from what he was actually trying to do. Um, cool. And that being sort of like, at that point, you're watching a movie with pictures of these nightmares and you're not in he even, even, Oppenheimer's head. He even sort of goes to the extent of um, imagining it in op through Oppenheimer's He doesn't show photos of the actual incident. And, and, and that's my point, is that I, I wondered about how effective this would be, you know, because by the end of the film, the it, it oddly uh, it reminded me of the 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 Bane chant, the fire rises. But when Einstein and and Oppenheimer are kind of talking to each other about like the explosion that caught fire, or you know the the, the reaction that was unstoppable, uh, Nolan then you know shows us a montage of imagined futures where you know nuclear bombs are flying across the. the the skies and Oppenheimer seeing this I I just I wonder about the strength of that guilt and and, and again it really just comes down to um, how effective it was for Stone to make the film stop for about 10 minutes and make us watch the Zapruder film over and over and over again um, you know and really really make the point and like you know i think there's we, a we level about, of real life death but but hang on hold on, hold on. So, so for example um alan rene's film hiroshima mon Amour is you know has a 20 minute opening which is just outlining this is the reality of the situation that these two people meet but in. that film wasn't about robert oppenheimer like do you get like do you know what i do you, like but there's but, but hiroshima and nagasaki are about robert oppenheimer I think the, I think one also distinct difference, and I, I, I maintain I, I think there's a version of this film that works the way you're talking about. But yeah. to the 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 analogy with JFK, the, the the clever thing that is done in that film is you are hearing about it for two hours and ten fifteen minutes, right. and then is the first time we see it. So the, the the structure of this film, as it were, it's not it's certainly leading up to Trinity and leading up to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but it's not like we're being seated. Mm. Look, we bring our own knowledge. We know it, it happens, but it's not like we're really hearing about it constantly for an hour and a half and then 
seeing the realization of it as you as it you even moves beyond it like it yeah, like because it it, again it, 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 it's very clear by that third act what this film is intent on focusing on i guess i also I, and again like i like i want to say uh in nolan we trust um and and i i don't <laughs> i don't think it's like a I, I don't think I'm not suggesting this in any way to to suggest that he's not being thoughtful about his choices or anything like that. Certainly not, um, because the, it, it it comes down to several things post the Trinity test and post the dropping of the bomb, which is, for example, when Oppenheimer visits Truman, played by Gary Oldman, and and you know, kind of feebly says, "I feel like I've got blood on my hands here," and Oldman. Um, you know, says the the bomb is not about you. Is it's actually, as, and from a structural point of view, that's a really remarkable scene because uh, the whole film has been Oppenheimer walking into rooms and everybody telling him how important he is yeah. and how much he matters. And you know, we haven't even talked about Matt Damon as as General Groves at this point. Um, but it's a remarkable scene because, uh, again, a really thoughtfully placed scene where where Truman basically says, "Hey, this isn't about you. It's about me." And, you know, like, get this crybaby out of here. And I, I, but I just wondered about the weight of the guilt that Oppenheimer is carrying there when he literally says, I have blood on my hands here. Um, and with a, I don't know, it, it's a, it's a, it, it is something that jumped at me when I watched the film. And, and the reason it jumped at me is that while Strauss, you know, while I think Strauss and Oppenheimer's sort of parallel demise is interesting, it did feel like a reach and not to the weight of the Trinity test and the impact of the Trinity test and the weight of what Nagasaki and Hiroshima actually was. And, you know, I, you know, it's more, it's it's more, it's more clever than anything. It's more of like, like, Oh, that's, that's, that's cool. I see. I see what he did here points to him for doing that. Yeah. It's a construction (laughs) that you're like, good, good job. You, you saw something in here and you made it work. I will say also what you were talking about the Truman scene, it makes me think of like how the, like the constant, if there's like another constant refrain, it's like about like, the the hubris of men just thinking it's all about them right it's, yeah. it, that's, yeah. it, it's about strauss thinking it's all about him and not realizing that that the two great physicists of in our history were talking about something else it's about yeah it's about oppenheimer <laughs> at times thinking it's all about him when in fact it's moved past you buddy it's it's it's, it's the world's problem now you can, you can feel like uh, kitty is seething the whole time oppenheimer is, is being dragged away to 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 work on the bomb and it's just like why am i here like you know you, you know, you can feel the sort of tension that she has about him uh, being not necessarily the most important person in her life, but like someone there. Did that performance work for you? Because it didn't the first time I saw it. And I thought I, 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 you were talking a little bit about, you know, kind of the I fridging think, of women, et cetera, yeah. in the no one films. Um, so so for me, um, yeah, definitely Florence Pugh's performance. I, I think she's great. I think she's wonderful in the film. But but I think the role is a little thankless in that there's a sort of sense like women, am I right? You know, kind of thing. Like, you know, like I, 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 because, because there's a, and I think it, I, I think it's twofold. And again, again, really respect to the man, but I, but I think it's twofold, which is that Nolan has a really elliptical style of putting scenes together. He actually, uh, in many ways, you know, unlike his contemporaries like P.T. Anderson or David Fincher, he's actually not good at individual scenes, but he's really good at juxtaposing one scene next to another so that it creates meaning. He's just yeah. like unparalleled at that. But like individual scenes, if you take them out of context and watch them on their own, they they're, they're, they can be pretty clunky. Um, and, and so Florence Pugh's character particularly, uh, I think, fell, fell into that. And then sort of 
Emily Blunt's character, Kitty, comes in with a sort of similar tone to it. You know, like she's um, either an alcoholic or, you know, like uh, unable to care for the child, which Oppenheimer doesn't take much of an interest in, just ha- hands it off to, to Hogan Chevalier, whom he later betrays as well. Um, and, and you know, I I think the moment that, that Blunt's performance works is in the... Uh, it's in the sequence, it, it's in the uh, hearing where she sees, she imagines Pew's character, which I think was actually quite effective. And then also when she said, you should have spat it uh, at Tella. And we see them in the final scene and she's kind of pursing her lips to do so. I think, I, I, I look, it, it's a little bit of a thankless, thankless role, but I think she does well to give those moments a little bit of levity. And 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 this is no slight, I think, to to Emily Blunt's performance. I I I felt like the way that character was structured, she mm. was two different people. Like right. whereas I found that like Oppenheimer and honestly many of Strauss and many of the scientists uh, were kind of like there was a lot of duality. But when they moved between the different aspects of a human, like you could sort of see the flow and kind of like the connective tissue that makes a character feel like a person where mm. Kitty was like. Well, now she's a drunk wife, and now she's up. Oh, all of a sudden, she's super competent. Like it, there's, there's, there's like it didn't have the flow between the different aspects of a person that the other characters did. Uh, so that was the only thing that didn't work for me slightly. There, I, I How will did you find it. I will say, I, I just seeing uh, this film again, the 17 times I've seen it. Um, <laughs> I, I want to see a, I think I want to see an IMAX Western that no one shoots. Uh, just them just, riding in the New Mexico like yeah. desert, like yeah. an IMAX. Gorgeous. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I will say also, I've like fallen down the rabbit hole a bit. I, we both saw that same doc, which is great. I think uh, the day after yeah. Trinity on, on Criterion, but also um, the transcripts exist of that hearing. And yeah. I looked up some of it and like, there is like, Kitty's testimony is basically in there. I mean, it's yeah, like the, the I, fact that she doesn't like his grammar. Yeah, or he doesn't like his sentence structure. Yeah, which is it, like a very movie movie moment. Um, yeah. uh, but really works, and and like I clearly seems like I don't think Emily Blunt needed to be convinced to to do this film, obviously. But like, if she needed a scene to to prove That's it. prove why it's worth it, it's it's that scene. We 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 have glossed over, and I'm glad we're sort of jumping through the movie now to talk about it in, in its totality. But the let's talk about possibly the funniest scene in the movie, which is uh, Gene Titlot uh, mounting Oppenheimer with the Bhagavad Gita and asking him to read in Sanskrit. I am death destroyer of worlds. I don't know. That's which, the most. You mean the most romantic? <laughs> the most, the most romantic moment of Christopher Nolan. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know I, what you do in your private life, but that's <laughs> hot, dude. That's why I learned Sanskrit. <laughs> that is why you learned Sanskrit. Really, just for that particular moment yeah. to happen. I I don't know about you guys, but that that was a real like. Guys, what are we doing here? It's a choice. <laughs> you know, it's a big well, choice. So I, 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 it is a choice that I also laughed at. Yeah. But I, I, I'm going to be honest. I like it because, from what I understand, correct me when I'm wrong. Mm. No, like that quote is is like determined. Like we've put it on Oppenheimer that he said it after the test, right? Right, and he didn't. Like, he might have said that somewhere or it might have been somewhere else, but it's so tied to him in in our view of this man in history that 
I like that Nolan chose to take that phrase, which we all know, or and I, I'm using air quotes, we all know he said, <laughs> and put it into a moment of pure like, well, this is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> like, it, because it, it, it works on two levels. I just I, it, I, it's I call it it's calling out the 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 silliness of of that entire sort of historical um story and you're getting that little bit anyway. Ooh, he said the thing. Like there's it's like kind of the only way it works. The there was two, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. there was two moments where I did my Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio point to the screen because one one was that yeah. where I was like, yeah. there it is. And it was the other was when uh Niels Bohr says, You are an American Prometheus. <laughs> I was like, totally. there it is, the title. Yeah. <laughs> um I mean, to that end, yeah, like I, I love Nolan films. I you know like I find um, Batman Begins near unwatchable because on I a scene love to, Batman Begins. on a scene to scene basis on a scene to scene basis Batman I, Begins is like impossible to actually take seriously. Like every I was going to challenge you to a duel over ice, <laughs> and, yeah, but now never to talk mind. about my dead mother yeah. and and the vengeance we need to seek upon. <laughs> to, to do so. uh, how I learned to rub your arms for warmth in the yeah. cold. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but again, yeah. what I will say is that while you know, again, while Fincher and PTA can do those scenes in sort of miraculous ways, where this the actual individual beat for beat moment within the scene is incredible, Nolan is so propulsive and so um, it, it's like there's a relentlessness to the way he puts his films together that it feels like a barrage you know like you're so yes. like there's not enough time to actually sit down and watch the scene you're just absorbing enough information in order to get to the next scene um because it's so much packed into it the, the, the film feels like a three-hour montage like it it's, does yeah it? yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it, it's just in never the best way. like i mean i remember seeing like the beginning of the movie like at first and i'm like oh wait this is just gonna keep going like this like you yeah. feel like you're like you're just in like an opening montage you're like no this is the whole movie <laughs> Uh, the 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 montage though of uh of young Oppenheimer and Gutenberg uh I believe like thinking about physics intercut with sort of real life uh sort of uh, elemental explosions um uh, to Ludwig's score is probably some of the best you know montage work uh that that Nolan's ever done and I'm the editor whose name I've forgotten but she worked with Bombach I believe uh I, I have forgotten the name. It, it's astonishing work in that sequence. Like it is some of the best stuff he's put to film. I mean, he, he's owned up to he, he's owned up to like the the cross cutting um, techniques. Like in my interview with him, we talked about you know, of course, mm -hmm. you think about like the you know, the Godfather films, mm -hmm. etc., and like the notion of like two plus two equal, equal five, right? Like yeah, knowing yeah. that like the cumulative effect of cross cutting works. And you're right. Like like I think that 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 constant montage effect definitely is additive i think uh, you know but that's what the art form is like the, you know it's a different thing to like to to judge him on those kind of individual 20 second fragments is kind of unfair that's not the it, game it, it, i i i think what i've learned watching this movie in particular was that there as i said we're in his world we should just accept it for what it is and yes there are you know Yes, reading, <laughs> saying "I am death" in the middle of coitus is is a little of a, <laughs> is a little bit of a reach. But... All right, prude. <laughs> yeah, sir. You're, you're out, I, Matt. You're out gunned here. Two out of the three. I, I don't want to suggest that I wouldn't do it. I don't want to suggest that I didn't try it. Have you tried it? That's the you're the only one have here with the book, it? by the way. You're the only one. <laughs> 
It is a it's a it's an interesting book. It's an interesting text, not one that immediately comes to mind post or during sex. Um, I, You're doing I, it wrong. <laughs> I I think we we we're sort of getting to it, but I uh, in terms of the to, the the totality of the experience, because as you say, it's two plus two equals five for Nolan. Um, I the the ending of this film is really fascinating because it takes the conceit of fear that the film has at the very beginning and really solidifies I think what is true for most you know post World War II nuclear stories in in cinema and in storytelling as kind of kind of gets to which is that we have unleashed the monster I mean Godzilla in Japanese mythology is a direct reflection of the of the use of atomic energy uh, fat man and little boy as we've talked about even in Nolan's films himself uh, tenant you know a film I don't love but is really about the use of nuclear power and what it can do to a civilization and how to prevent that from happening and Dark Knight rises is 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 again uh, Batman running around with a nuclear bomb trying to detonate it away from 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 people. Um, I think for me, the the sort of this conversation between Einstein and Oppenheimer, where he suggests that whether he intended to or not, the the reaction has taken hold and will never stop is quite possible is a very dark and difficult read of what the film, you know, like to suggest that this film is a celebration of Oppenheimer, I think really misses the point of that final sequence, right? Like, is anyone saying that? Is anyone saying this is a celebration of Oppenheimer? It, I haven't I mean, heard that. Anywhere. Isn't this like, I mean, it's has, I haven't thought of this before, but we were talking about Kubrick earlier. This is the end of, of Strange it's Love. A t- of, it's, of Strange Love, yeah. The, the but without over. the humor. Yeah. I mean, it's, right. it's like, oh, Suck like all the humor out. Yeah. yeah. Like the, we're, we're fucked. The world's over. Yeah. Yeah. We are fucked. The world is over. <laughs> Nuclear power. And, and, you know, like, uh, again, the rabbit hole I fell into was looking at w- the development of nuclear weapons. It would tell her, you know, the, the, the hydrogen bomb was eventually developed and the power of uh, the super uh, right now outweighs by orders of thousands of magnitude what uh, Fat Man and Little Boy could do. Uh, and it is a terrifying thought when, you know, Putin, uh, you know, talked about the release of nuclear weapons in the Ukraine, for example. Um, and, you know, uh, I I think... It's it's remarkable for me that Nolan pulls this what ostensibly could feel like a biopic uh, and makes a sort of fairly fairly grand, if not familiar, statement about nuclear power. I mean, did, did, like, how how did you all walk away from the movie? It's horrifying. <laughs> it's <laughs> chilling. I mean, the only thing I can think of back to, and like, this was a very divisive movie, is like, you know. Adam McKay, don't look up, right? Yeah. He, he is mm-hmm. similarly it kind expl- of... A, the world ends. The world ends. And yeah. like, that is not a good feeling, even if Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Rylance is running around butt naked. Sorry. Yeah. Um, it's... Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's an astounding thing for a movie opening in the middle of summer <laughs> meant yeah. to make hopefully half a billion dollars. That is, that is inarguably the takeaway, which is we are on the path towards destruction. Mutually assured, mutually yeah. assured destruction. Uh, what other takeaway could there possibly... I don't see another reading of it. It's not like... And Oppenheimer was a decent guy. Great. Yeah. But, the, uh, but a little more important is we're on the path to mutual destruction. <laughs> Matt, without having seen the first few minutes of the movie, how did the... I mean, how did the sort of sum total of the movie feel to you? Oh, I mean, it's... I mean, that's that's the, the, the message it's giving. It's... it's uh, I, I honestly... I think um, 
the the we're fucked messaging is very very clear um it's funny so i went and saw i'm sure i'll tell this story again when we get to the other movies but i i saw three movies in a day josh <laughs> i saw this at 9 30 i saw ninja turtles at two and then i saw a second time of mission impossible at four um and it just worked out i haven't done that in a long time and i i do not i i do not regret it because it was such a weird day at the movies but in both of those films that i saw after the fact even in moments of joy or levity or fun i found myself going back and thinking about oppenheimer and thinking about well the fucking toothpaste is out of the tube the genie's out of the bottle the fire's already started you know it's, the fire rises. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> One wow. film about the horrors of AI, two films about the horror of radiation fallout. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, one, <laughs> there's a real turning a frown upside down with, uh, with the ooze. But regardless. Um, well, I, I, I... You think that gives you power over me? <laughs> Let's um, not go... The, are we getting to our Bane impressions? Because I can do another half hour if you want. I mean, we can go. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm glad it took this long. Uh, look, I, I, this movie sticks with you, and yeah. I think this is a incredibly effective look at not only Oppenheimer and Strauss, sort of, and their th that relationship that is obviously amped up for for dramatic purposes, but also in a weird way showing the best and the worst of human nature and how it's eventually going to kill us all. Like, <laughs> like the best being like this is the dumbest thing I'll say all day, and I just did a Bane impression. Take the death out of the equation. The Manhattan Project, as, as an event, is fucking insane that it was able to function as a, a project. Like, it, humans don't work together like that, and they did it. it it's, you know, just, it's, just on that note, um, it's interesting to think that this film was written post-COVID, when the world's leading scientists were coming together to try and commute collectively um, work together for a cure for COVID. And, and, you know, my wife, who's a scientist who was actually working on those projects, I think she would get a lot out of just watching this film with that sense in mind that, that there was a time when people like came together collectively inevitably to destroy it, to, to create like one right, of the most destructive powers time, on the planet. There was a time when scientists, science and scientists were respected and now we're here. Right. Um, <laughs> won't get into that. <laughs> My point is this. So you have like sort of the sort of it's a, it's a demonstration and, a, and it shows you sort of sort of the best of, of like human collaboration, even though it is for incredibly terrible means. Mm. And there's something actually with that whole encumbrasment and what the film is showing you very human about that. Um, and I don't know, I, this, uh, this movie, I think hit me to my core and uh, every, every movie I've watched since I keep going back to this one in my head. Right. Um, and that to me is a sign of a successful film. I don't know. It is the most, rewatchable movie for me in a weird way since yeah. our beloved Mad Max Fury Road, another film oh, about yes. our our apocalypse, dealing with the dealing with the post apocalypse <laughs> yeah. in a way. Um I don't know. There's a lot to feast on as you as you know, as this conversation attests. And like we've only scratched the surface. I mean the, there's the filmmaking, there's the yeah. performances, there's the themes. It's <laughs> it's um it's it's a gigantic swing. And I think for the most part he connects. And, you know, the thing that I, I think I really, uh, you know, for, for 
I think it's just great to chew on this movie and think about it over again and rewatch it and and not watch it from a point of view that it's a perfect masterpiece, but like that there are interesting facets to it that move in waves and we can think about them. And, you know, like I think Nolan says in your interview, for better or for worse, every moment is considered. And And I think the other thing that's amazing is that Nolan, you know as you said, as you pointed out, is one of the most important filmmakers, most important commercial filmmakers living today. And I think this is a movie like 2001 A Space Odyssey, which always, you know, when, when they want to do 70 millimeter revivals, we'll, we'll drag out 2001 A Space Odyssey. I think this is Nolan's version of that. I think this is his film that will be dragged out for decades to come to, to, for both for a sort of a cinematic conversation about like the the prowess of the filmmaking, but also the the profound statement that it has on society. And again, I don't want to say that with the sense of like everything is perfect about this film. There's lots yeah. of this that I think is really clunky and goofy and 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 very much in the Nolan sort of mode of filmmaking. But I really, after being somewhat disappointed by Tenant, by not really connecting with Dunkirk. Um, I think this is, I, I think this is his masterpiece. And and what's exciting about that to me is he's still a young filmmaker. He's in you the know, prom, like, right? Yeah. He's yeah. Really, I yeah. think he's got, you know, he's, I think from this point, the, the, hopefully the inclination to experiment, to try bigger swings, you know, to kind of like Kubrick going from Dr. Strangelove all the way through to 2001, Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut, you know, like make really interesting swings from this point because who's going to say no? I yeah. Think- and hopefully Josh, you make 20 bucks. And he goes to I, I, James Bond. I, I will say, I, I, I do not want that to happen at all. I'm not I, hope, I, want it to I hope you Just lose your, all of your money, record. Josh. I'm not saying I want it. I mean, I would be fascinated by it. But it does feel like, yeah, probably a waste of everyone's like endeavors. Like if we, you know, how good that can, can that be? He can do better. But like to, yeah. your, to your point, like he kind of, he's done a, a bunch of big swings. And I think I'm with you guys. I sense from this, like Interstellar felt like that big swing that didn't quite work for me. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah. such a bummer. It felt like he was like, this is going to be his 2001. And it yeah. wasn't. And I know it did work in that way for some people. Yeah. Um, so it's satisfying to see him like take another ginormous swing yeah. in a different way. And, and it actually in a movie sit in a, in a shitty office. <laughs> You know, in a movie set in a shitty office is his 2001. It's incredible. Drag out the IMAX. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been the only podcast about the film Oppenheimer. Josh, thank you so much for coming and hanging out yet again. When when you are not here, where can folks find all of the wonderful things you do? Check out Happy, Sad, Confused. It's kind of an Oppenheimer podcast lately. We've done Christopher <laughs> Nolan, Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, maybe thinking about some other folks behind the camera too. We'll see. Um, yeah, check out my YouTube channel, Josh Horowitz. And um, you can't avoid me. I'm on social media, Joshua Horowitz. Thanks for having <laughs> me, guys. Of course, always a pleasure. Shahir, when you are not uh, quoting your favorite book in multiple <laughs> languages, 
while having the most intimate moments you possibly can. Where can folks find you? I'm not even going to try to do an impression of what I would sound like in that Please moment. Please don't. It's a high-pitched squeal um, and very <laughs> off-putting. Uh, but you can find me attempting that on my website at www.shahirdow.com. I swear it's not an OnlyFan. Um, Matt, when you are uh, putting together the pieces of a beautifully edited film by having to imagine the first 10 minutes of it, where can people find you? <laughs> you can find me doing a lot of mental gymnastics at my website, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com, my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z-E on Instagram and P-S-N, and of course, Emperor MSK on whatever the fuck Twitter is called. Um... Next week. Oh, next week. We know what it is because we already recorded it. We recorded it. Talk to me. Josh, have you seen Talk to Me? I have seen it. Great. Do you love it? it? Yeah. Very much. Yeah. Uh, great new filmmakers. We uh, really loved that conversation. Um, maybe a lot in line, uh, a perfect pairing with our Evil Dead Rise conversation with Patrick Williams just a few weeks ago. Um, and then we, we, we're we on vacation at some point. We're going to see some movies. Josh, is there anything else that's coming out that you're excited about Ooh, yeah. other than seeing Barbie tomorrow night? Oh, now you're putting me on the spot. Fincher, The Killer. That's the oh, end of the, the year. Killer. That's, that's what I'm waiting. We haven't anything from it, right? I think there's one still released. No film festivals that- announced, but... It's on that the docket for me. That still is giving me real, um, uh, uh, who's the French filmmaker? Uh, Jean-Pierre Melville kind of vibes. Okay. That, that still is kind of like giving me that sort of like the, and Fassbind is kind of perfect for that. I'm ready. I'm so ready. Yeah. All, All right. right. Well, until next crime, we'll talk at your ear holes later. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.